In the midst of social and racial justice reforms across the country, an overlooked but equally important policy change is sweeping the nation. From Minneapolis to Sacramento, cities and states alike have begun the process of dismantling exclusionary zoning practices by legalizing other housing types in traditionally single-family-only neighborhoods. In today's episode, we look at the so-called ban on single-family housing and the ushering in of missing middle housing. I'm Alex Huffman, and this is City Planning Matters. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of City Planning Matters. Again, I am your host, Alex Huffman. As I mentioned in the top of this episode, today we're going to be discussing missing middle housing, and specifically missing middle housing in the context of traditionally single-family-only neighborhoods. And so before we get into some of the topics and discussion that we want to have surrounding this issue, as I like to do traditionally at the top of each episode, we want to discuss a little bit about what missing middle housing is. So that way, as we move forward in this conversation, we're on the same page and and have a common understanding of what's being discussed and the issues surrounding those things. So first, uh, when we talk about missing middle housing, what we're talking about are housing types that maybe are not in existence, or if they are in existence, are of a limited type within your city or community. And so traditionally, in many cities across the US, with the exception of some of the really large housing markets, there is single family housing, and then there's apartment housing, and then really not much in between. But as you and I know, Um, that there's a lot of people who are interested in living in other types of housing besides maybe a multi-story or large apartment complex or living in a single-family detached dwelling, right? There are townhomes, there are duplexes, there are triplexes, uh, there's quadruplexes. um, You know, there's a lot of different housing types, live-work units, right, that maybe appeal to a certain segment of population, but because of a variety of issues, which we'll get into, uh, that those housing types are either not permitted or not represented evenly within a community. And so the lack of that type of housing is what we refer to then as missing middle housing. And so Where we want to start now that we have a common language or common understanding of what we're talking about when we say missing middle housing is to have a discussion about, you know, how do we get here, right? How do we get to a place where there's really two housing options that exist in the U.S. for the most part, which is the single family house and the apartments? So, you know, a really good place to start, and this is going to be, you know, for some of you, either a refresher of, you know, what you learned in planning school, or if you've been listening, uh, and we appreciate you that have been listening to our previous episodes uh, that have been discovered or, or discussed in greater detail in, you know, some of these other episodes that we have. And so just to briefly go over this question of how do we get here, where we have this lack of missing or this missing middle housing is to start first and foremost with uh, 
Ambler versus Euclid. So again, as a refresher, Ambler versus Euclid is a Supreme Court case. It's basically it's it's looked at in the world of planning or at least planning within the U.S. as the seminal case that put planning at the forefront or or legalized it in, in the United States. And while it's generally viewed as the observance and the uphold upholding of zoning law, what it also had the effect of doing was demonizing multifamily housing. And so um, for those of you who don't know, uh, the background on this case was, uh, you know, there was someone who uh, had some land, they wanted to use it for an industrial use, uh, it was zoned residential, uh, the the village of, of Euclid in Ohio said, you know, no, you know, we have a comprehensive zoning law that says you're not allowed to use the, the property as you intend to use it. And uh, the Supreme Court upheld the city zoning ordinance, which, again, for planning in the U.S. was a huge win. Um, but what's often overlooked or not talked about is how the Supreme Court justices and their support of of the village of Euclid lumped multifamily housing in with the same type of obnoxious uses as industrial, which again, thinking of the fact that this case was taking place in the late 1920s and how you know industry at that time was something that was pretty obnoxious, right? I mean, there was no Clean Air or Clean Water Act. Um, businesses or industry could do whatever they wanted, right? And so uh, while it's a probably true characterization on the industrial side to compare, you know, factories that spew out obnoxious gases or, uh, you know, just are polluting all across the place uh, with apartments is kind of crazy when you think about it. Right. But that was the context in which multifamily housing was placed at that time that then carried over the next several decades in terms of the perception that not only the court had of that type of housing, but then so too just the general populace in the United States. And so from the very beginning, we can see that the perception of multifamily, anything other than a single family residence was not looked at in a very positive way. The second way that we got here where we limited this missing middle housing was a combination of lending practices and tax codes. And so again, uh, you know, this is something that we talked about in another episode, but just how um, when you think about today, if you try to purchase a home, any type of home from a single family residence to a duplex, to a triplex, to a quadruplex, to owning a condo, um, you know that the process for getting approval on a single family detached residence is a lot easier than trying to get approval for a condo in a multifamily building. I think of an example of something I experienced, right, is I was trying to, or looking into the possibility of purchasing a condo in the downtown that I, that I lived at one point, right? And because there were no comparables, comps as they call them, uh, to uh, you know that type of housing, in that particular area of the city, it was all but impossible to get approved for a mortgage. And you look at an experience like that and compare it to the ease at which you're able to get uh, a mortgage in a single family only residential neighborhood, it's, it's night and day. 
And then the other thing too, that's really important to keep in mind is when we think about, you know, federal income tax, um, also that our federal government subsidizes people to go for home ownership and thus pushing them towards this very specific housing type, right? Because you get rebates back through your federal income taxes by being a homeowner. And so that's the second way that we try to push people towards, you know, a single type of housing and discouraging other types where you can't get approved for mortgages, therefore you don't get this tax credit, right? And so then uh, the third thing and probably the most impactful and enduring uh, issue uh, that really cemented the fact that uh, we moved away from this middle housing type and into this very segmented market is the combination of zoning laws and restrictive covenants. And so, again, we talked about it in another episode where, um, you know, zoning laws were really put in place to protect single family residences, again, coming from Ambler versus Euclid. And then you have the secondary impact where then uh, private property owners then can put on in place covenants that act as an additional layer on top of zoning, which sometimes have the case of saying, you know, even if, you know, the city changes zoning laws, we're going to put a covenant on your property, which requires all property owners within your subdivision to sign off on, um, that says that you can only use this property moving forward for single family residences. And so a, a lot of times these had a combination and, and, you know, today when we talk about one, we're really talking about the other of this economic and thus racial covenant aspect to things. And so by limiting uh, the types of housing that are permitted in a neighborhood, not only through zoning, but through a covenant, has the effect of limiting the type of people who can live in, in neighborhoods, right? And so when you look at the combination of these things, uh, it gets us to where we are today, which is that there's this missing middle housing. And so what does this mean for you as a resident or you as a city planner uh, looking to address these issues uh, for your city. And where it's really gotten us today is, I would say it's, it's two things, right? So one would be that we got into a place that in some housing markets, it's really unaffordable, right? And so we think about, again, a very extreme example would be a place like um, San Francisco, where because so much of their housing stock is single family residential, that it puts a limit on the housing supply and thus makes it very expensive. But we also see it in places where they're kind of these housing markets that are emerging, right? So I think about within Texas, there's Austin. Austin's a very popular place for people to be moving. Lots of people from California, in fact, are moving to Texas, which is ironic. They're bringing the housing struggles to, to Texas. And uh, it makes housing really unaffordable when you have a limit on single family residential. And it's not just, or not single family residential, but on the, the middle housing, right? And you only allow for the single family residential. But it's not just Austin, right? You can look at examples in Minneapolis, or you can look at places like even Charlotte, North Carolina, which years ago, you know, they didn't have a housing affordability issue. But because people are moving there, and really driving up the demand for housing, and then your your combination of zoning laws and lending practices and all those types of things have the effect of limiting housing stock and it pushes pushes the price up. But then another thing too that is really important that maybe for example, you know, my city, the housing affordability issue isn't the same. You know, I think that generally speaking, 
even with lower uh, income levels here in El Paso, that uh, housing affordability isn't as hot of a topic, but of equal importance is this issue of of services or your city's bottom line, right? And so a lot of cities and states have taken a really hard stance on property tax increases. And so when we think about uh, this housing type, the single family residential development does not pay for the services that it demands. Um, I, I really don't want to get into the the topic in this particular episode, but just know that there are you know entire podcasts or organizations which exist to have this discussion. Probably the most um, you know obvious and 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 um, uh, you know one that that people look to to have this type of discussion is strong towns and strong towns whole purpose for existence is to have this discussion right of how do you balance uh the type of development that exists in your city with the types of of services that you want and the important thing is that even if your city doesn't have um you know this this housing demands that is incredibly expensive that prices people out just know that when you have people who through your again through your zoning laws you can make minimum lot requirements tremendous right and you're excluding this entire segment of population from obtaining a certain level of services or going to a certain school or being able to be near a really really great park right and so uh, you can have within your housing market of your city, the submarket which exists that because of these different policies that are in place, have the same effect of pricing people out, but it's just limiting the types of services that people can get within the small area. But then as a whole region, if you have this over dominance of a single housing type um, that you don't have enough income to like at your city level, right? The city doesn't collect enough taxes to pay for those services. And so again, to make this example a little bit more specific, El Paso amongst the largest cities in the US uh, has the third highest share of single family detached residential. But within the state of Texas, we have the highest tax rate amongst, you know, I know for sure the biggest cities, if not, you know, all cities. And the reason from my perspective is because our housing type is just really one. It's almost, I think, 75%, 76% of all of our housing type is single family detached residential, which then when you think about tax revenue is not significant enough. And then when you think about the subsequent development pattern that comes along as a result of that is geared towards this car-centric, car-dependent type of development pattern. So we don't have a lot of commercial for the land area that we take up, right? Because we don't have the housing density and businesses thrive on a lot of people living in and around those services uh, to, to you know, want to stay in business, right? And so you have this situation that because you only have one single family housing type that's low density development, you get the subsequent low density type of commercial development and then the tax revenue is terrible and we can't pay for our services. And so, when we think about then what missing middle housing can can do for your city, it can help address not only issues of affordability, but also services. And so what we want to get into then after the break are to discuss 
five steps that your city can take to legalize missing middle housing. All right, well, welcome back everyone. Uh, so again, we've been talking thus far about you know the situation that is surrounding how cities got into a place where there is this uh, missing middle housing, which currently exists. And now what we really wanna talk about are the five steps that your city can take to legalize missing middle housing. And the reason I think this is really important is because um, you know, there have been a lot of cities, as I mentioned, at the top of the episode that have made big headlines uh, for uh, their, quote, ban on missing middle housing. And uh, what that involved was uh, not so much an incremental approach to addressing the missing middle housing, but this all out, uh, for lack of a better, better term, war on single family housing. And so like a city, for example, like Minneapolis took the extraordinary step of uh, just saying, you know, one day, okay, we're going to change our zoning ordinance and we're just going to allow for uh, triplexes and quadruplexes. And traditionally, that's what we're talking about with missing middle housing will be the duplex, the triplex and the quadruplex uh, in single family residential uh, neighborhoods. And while this was a really great step and something that rightfully so did get them a lot of headlines that for a lot of us and a lot of the cities that we work in doing such a drastic step um, probably isn't uh, very realistic. Um, but then the other thing too that I want to address is that I think that it's really important that we really consider language and language matters, right? And so I think it's a in my personal experience, it's a it's a dangerous thing to do to use language like banning single family residential or like the war on fill in the blank, right? Because I think that that immediately polarizes the issue and makes it almost radical, where in reality, this isn't such a radical thing, right? And so I think first and foremost, we need to put this in the correct context. And so when we talk about missing middle housing and how do we implement policies which seek to um, you know, legalize these things, is that be really mindful of the language that you use surrounding the policy, right? And so as an example, talking to people and framing this in the context of lowering your taxes or providing better services sounds a lot better than banning single family housing. And so I just want to start with that as kind of a little bit of context and a frame of mind when we start talking about some of these incremental policies that maybe you can use in your city to start addressing this issue to get at, again, everything from cost of service to affordability when it comes to housing. So step one, and you know, this is probably, you know, really obvious, but I also don't want to overlook it, right? Is that when we think about how can we take that first initial step to addressing middle missing middle housing is to start small, right? So for example, like pick a zoning district that either have small minimum lot sizes or already allow for duplexes, right? So if you have a city 
that only allow single family residential in your residential zoning districts, that maybe as your first step, you want to just say, okay, in areas of our city where we allow for really small or comparatively small single family residential detached uses, that we're going to just start allowing for duplexes. And the reason I say that is because people who live in these residential districts where the minimum lot sizes are small or in residential zoning districts that already allow for duplexes, they're not afraid of density. They've chosen that neighborhood because either it's affordable or because they want to live in uh, in a environment where people live closer together. And some people choose that. And that's the big thing with missing middle housing, right? You're not dictating that everybody has to live in a triplex or a quadruplex or a townhome. It's just saying that you now have a choice. You don't have to have a big yard, you know, in the Southwest where I live, like, why do you want to have a large yard that you have to potentially maintain? I mean, most people have rocks for yards here. And so it makes no sense that we have these large minimum lot sizes. Um, And so, again, we're talking about housing choice when we talk about these things. And so I would say as your first step, you know, pick those small lot size zoning districts or the zoning districts that already allow for duplexes and either introduce the duplex or allow for, you know, those next set of uh, uses in the housing continuum, the triplex and the quadruplex and these zoning districts, because people probably aren't going to be opposed to it. Um, because they're used to living like that. And it's not going to be very different from what's currently there. The second thing is, and I know that anytime you introduce a a drastic policy shift is that you need to sometimes figure out a way to lessen the blow, right? And so one of the ways that you can do that with uh, development requirements that look at permissible uses, which is what this is, right? It's allowing for a new type of use is to put in place locational requirements. And so when I say locational requirements, it's just putting limitations on things. So that way it's not an outright full on change all at once. So as an example, you could say, all right, in this particular zoning district, we're going to allow for triplexes and quadruplexes, but we're only going to allow them at corner lots, or we're only going to allow them uh, in locations that are near transit, right? And in that case, you're, you're allowing it, but it's not full-on change and it's and it's going to be something that's a little bit more gradual it's that like step one and a half as opposed to step two right and i think the important thing to do when you put in place location requirements is that you tie it to a larger goal again like something like boosting transit ridership right so why are you allowing for triplexes and quadruplexes well because we want to boost our transit ridership that shifts the focus away from like this like scary thing like oh my god a triplex is going to be allowed in my neighborhood uh to okay i can get behind lessening traffic congestion in in my city um or uh you can tie it to maybe you want to allow for greater housing density and locations in your city where you have a lot of services right so you already have a senior center you have a rec center and the idea would be like hey we're going to do this because we want to reduce the cost of service per household. And then on top of it, we're not going to have people like building new houses in places where they don't have like a police and fire station. Again, if you tie it to something like, hey, we want to do this to reduce your taxes. Again, it shifts the focus away from being like this one thing, which for some people is scary, to something that people either understand or can get behind. Um, so that would be the second step. 
So let's say that you've done step one and you've done step two. Um, what else can you do uh, to maybe increase then the location? Uh, so you've done it and you only allow in corner lots, but now, you know, people are seeing that it's not so scary, but they're a little bit skeptical of it. So like, what's that? What's the next step that you could do? To me, what that next step is, is maybe looking at design standards. And so I went through this process uh, with some of uh, the city council members I worked with uh, when we are we're in the process of developing our policy. And I think the thing that's very eye-opening for people um, that, again, as planners, we shouldn't take for granted, right, is that um, triplexes and quadruplexes don't have to look like triplexes and quadruplexes, right? If I tell you triplex, I tell you quadruplex, or even I tell you duplex, I think there's a picture that comes to your mind where people are like, oh, it's going to look like not a single family house. And the reality of the situation is that that doesn't have to be true. A well-designed uh, triplex, a well-designed duplex can be uh, something that blends in quite well. And that the reality is that probably the only people, if it's designed well, who will know that it's not a single family detached residence are the people who live there. And so, again, if you put in place these these initial steps and you want to be like, OK, I want to do something to make it even more widespread. I want to allow it in like all of my zoning districts that allow for duplexes. That next step that you can do that can help alleviate some of the concerns that people may have. And that's just good practice in general. So that way it's not people just trying to like make a quick profit and split the house down the middle and make it look terrible. Right. Is that you can put place design standards, which preserve the character and again like character is one of those words that in planning can mean a lot of different things but i think essentially what you want to make sure is is that the houses more or less look the same and they don't look like a duplex or they don't look you know like a a lesser version of what's currently existing in the neighborhood so that would be um you know my my third step there the fourth step that is really critical to this and is sometimes where cities who start this process really miss the mark is you gotta look at removing residential parking requirements. Um, and the reason I say that is because let's say for example, you're, you're legalizing these things and you're saying, okay, they're permitted um, in like all of our zoning districts, right? But you don't touch the parking requirements. If you have a, a, zoning ordinance that requires, for example, like most cities do, two parking spaces for every single single family residence or residence for that matter, that by going to a duplex, you're going to be required four parking spaces off street, go to a triplex, it's going to be six parking spaces. A lot of times your residential lots aren't large enough to accommodate that much parking. And so if you're going to do a policy like this and really want it to be successful, you have to look at residential parking requirements. And I know that can be really scary, um, but just a suggestion to look at is a couple of things. First is I would look at uh, within your city and you can get this information, I believe down to the block group, is that you can look at auto ownership in your city. And so I know, for example, in my city that almost one third of all households own no car or one car, right? So 33% of our residents, that's over 200,000 people do not own a car or have one car yet in every single instance we require two parking spaces that makes absolutely no sense so people are having to build a garage for a car that they don't own 
and that's an unnecessary expense. And, you, and if you frame it from like a housing affordability issue, that's a really good way to get at that. The second thing that I found was really powerful as well is that again, and in my city, we require again, these two offshoot parking spaces. We require in all instances, a 20 foot front yard setback for a driveway, right? So you have a garage, you have the 20 foot driveway. So that right there is already four parking spaces. And then our design standards for construction, when we look at cross-section design, every single one of our streets in residential districts, especially requires in the cross-section design on-street parking. And so even in our smaller zoning districts that I think the minimum lot size is, you know, 50 feet, that they have an additional one parking space in front of their house. But in other zoning districts, you can have two parking spaces, three parking spaces, four parking spaces on street, in addition to the ones that you have in your garage, in addition to the ones that you have on uh, your in your driveway. And so when we did an analysis looking at local streets and residential districts, um, we found that the city had an inventory of 700,000 on-street parking spaces and residential residential districts alone, which was more than enough parking for two parking spaces for every household within our entire county, not just our city, our county. And so we have this gigantic oversupply of parking. And I think if you can help frame the magnitude of how much parking you have and then demonstrate how nobody uses it, you can look at aerial photography and just do a screenshot of a residential neighborhood you know, and see how few people use on-street parking. The point is that there's a whole lot of supply and most residential districts can afford to lose the requirement for off-street parking. Again, doesn't say you can't do it, but it just says, hey, it's no longer required. Maybe you want to park on the street. Maybe you don't have an issue parking on the street. So like, why are you going to be required to have that added housing cost to build uh, a garage? But then Another step is if you really want to have that missing middle housing, you've got to look at parking because if you don't do it, it really decreases the likelihood that people will build, uh, you know, the triplex or quadruplex if you're still requiring the same amount of parking. And then last, the last thing I would say that you look at then is changing your lot standards. And this is probably the most complex. Um, but I think if you're getting to this stage that you're talking about changing lot standards, what you're going to start seeing is that builders are going to start responding to those limitations and it's going to push them towards more of the townhome, more of the triplex, more of the quadruplex, more of the multifamily housing. If they really get limited in terms of, you know, how sprawling the property can be. And so again, if your minimum lot size goes from 6,000 square feet down to 2,000 square feet, it's definitely going to have an impact on the type of housing that gets built. And what you'll see is that uh, if, if people start building, you know, on these 2000 square foot lots, which builders might write because they can make more profit that way, that then the, the archetype that exists within your city will probably start to change. There will be new housing types introduced and there might be this bottom up push uh, to legalize more of this type of housing in all of your all of your zoning districts, all of your residential zoning districts. So those are, in my mind, for the, the five incremental steps that you can take to get to a place where you can start addressing some of this missing middle housing as an alternative to this outright, you know, overarching change where you just one day 
uh, allow for the missing middle housing by right and all these residential zoning districts. So before we let off here, I do want to have, you know, one word of caution here. And again, it's something that we talked about at the top of this episode, which is these restrictive covenants, right? And so today, while we don't really see these race-based type of uh, restrictive covenants, we still do see these income-based restrictive covenants. And, and one of the things I think that's really important is that if you embark on this journey to legalize the missing middle housing within your city is that you should really look and try to map out the locations of restrictive covenants that exist on, you know, all of your existing subdivisions. Because again, from experience, one of the things I think that you might find is that a lot of the subdivisions that are getting approved today may have a restrictive covenant that only permits single family housing. And so the reason I bring that up is because I think it's really important that um, you use this information to help appropriately frame the, the scope of the problem, but then also the magnitude of the, of the solution. I'd hate for people to go through this process and think like, okay, I'm going to do all this work to legalize missing middle housing only to find out that maybe only 10% of your residential neighborhoods um, because of restrictive covenants allow for missing middle housing. And then in the places that you've legalized it is the places that have the restrictive covenant. So like they can't get built. That would be a real uh, issue, and I think it would maybe raise uh, you know some concerns about the credibility of your policy if that's not an intermediate step you take. So, just a word of caution that as you start to go through this process of developing these incremental steps, just map out the locations of your restrictive covenants, and make sure that where you're going to be legalizing the housing units are going to be in places where people can actually take advantage of it. So that's it for today. Uh, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. Um, but really, I want to hear from you. Um, I'm really curious to hear, you know, we have a lot of listeners across the U.S. and even internationally. And so what policy changes has your city undertaken to address this missing middle housing, right? Not so much even from a U.S. perspective, but then, you know, across across the world, what has been, uh, you know, your experience here with implementing policies that seek to address these issues? And like what incremental steps have you undertaken? So I identified five. I'm sure there are a lot more. That's just my experience. And so I'd like to hear from you. What incremental steps have you taken that resulted in success in this area? Uh, if you're interested, you can leave me a message on my Anchor page um, by going to Anchor FM backslash planning and leave me a message. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks as always for listening. I'm Alex Huffman, and this is City Planning Matters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you're enjoying the content, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen and rate the podcast so we can continue to improve the content of each episode for our listeners. I'm Alex Huffman, and this is Planning Matters.